This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. Today, Iranian-American filmmaker Maryam Keshavars. She was banned from returning to Iran after the release of her first feature, Circumstance, about Iran's youth underground culture and two young women who fall in love. The film and her new work, The Persian Version, won the Audience Award at Sundance. Also, we'll hear from electronic music producer and DJ Jennifer Lee, better known as Toki Monsta. She's considered a pioneer in electronic music, a field where men dominate. In 2016, she was diagnosed with a rare brain disease that required two surgeries, leaving her for a time without the ability to hear, sound, or speak. She talks with us about how she pushed herself despite it all to make music again. And Ken Tucker will review a new Joni Mitchell box set of rare recordings from the early 70s. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle. Find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day. All in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. Terry has today's first interview. I'll let her introduce it. You won't be shocked to hear that a feature film about the underground youth culture in Iran and two young women sexually drawn to each other was banned in Iran. The film's writer and director was banned from ever returning to Iran. That filmmaker is my guest, Maryam Keshavars, the American daughter of Iranian immigrants. That film, called Circumstance, was released in 2011 and had the distinction of becoming the top black market DVD in Iran that year. In the U.S., it won the Audience Award at Sundance. This year, she became the first director to win the Sundance Audience Award a second time when she received it for her new film, The Persian Version, which she wrote and directed. It also won the Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award. 
The Persian version is a fiction film, but it's based on the story of Keshavarz's life. Here's a few things about her that are very similar to her main character, Layla. Keshavarz identifies as bisexual. Her parents first came to the U.S. in 1967 as part of a program recruiting doctors from other countries to care for patients in underserved communities because there was a scarcity of doctors here. Her father set up a practice in Brooklyn's Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood. During her childhood, Keshavar spent summers in Iran and attended second grade there during the height of the Islamization of the schools. She managed to smuggle in cassettes of Michael Jackson, Cyndi Lauper, and Prince, which got people dancing at parties behind closed doors. As Keshavars got older, the cultural differences between her and her mother put a strain on their relationship. But relatively recently, a scandalous secret from her mother's past was revealed, which enabled Keshavars to see her mother in a new way. About half of the new movie is the story of Layla's mother growing up in Iran and entering into an arranged marriage at the age of 13. Her first child came soon after. Maryam Keshavars, welcome to Fresh Air, and congratulations on your film. I want to start with being banned in Iran. So your first film, Circumstance, was the most popular banned film in Iran in the year it came out, 2011. Does that carry a lot of status in Iran? And how do they even measure that? It's not like they can do it at the checkout counter. <laughs> it's funny. I, I see. I meet people all the time who have seen the film Underground. Even the, my editor, one of my editors, when I was interviewing him, he couldn't believe he was meeting me. He said, oh, we, we all watched that when we were in uh, university. It was like the biggest underground film. And I knew it was a big deal when my uncle, who was very religious, evidently had sat down his whole family not knowing what it was about. And they all watched it together. <laughs> they made it through the whole thing? <laughs> That's the thing I like about Iranians. You know, they might have different political opinions, but they do like movies. So evidently <laughs> he watched the whole thing. One of the many things you have in common with your main character, Layla, in your new film is that she smuggles in uh, cassettes of Michael Jackson, Cyndi Lauper, Prince. So you know the importance of films that are banned but you also know the importance of getting good music, like good American music, into Iran. So how did you smuggle it in as a child? I would have a lot of requests. All my cousins who were the only part of the family that lived in America, so my cousins wanted me to bring smuggle tapes. So I would stick it in my underwear, I would Michael Jackson or, or Cyndi Lauper. And because it was an Islamic country, they're never going to check they don't check girls' bodies typically. So if it was on my body, I had a pretty good shot of getting it through. It was all about how to walk naturally when you have cassettes in your undies. It did help to borrow one of my brother's underoos, those like higher waisted ones so you can fit more tapes in there. You need but, good uh, elastic for this to work. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, I was asked to smuggle all types of things because it became banned. It's not, remember, it's not like you can do digital downloads at that time. It was all... You know, it was all old school, so I'd have to actually bring physical copies of tapes and are like, they wanted Cosmo or Bridal Magazine. They wanted to know how to get done up for the new season of when people were getting married. So it just, you know, I would whatever I could tape onto my body or whatever I could like safely bring in. But sometimes I would get scared because you have to gauge if they're going to bust you. So I would always be very vigilant at reading people. And was this the time I was going to get pulled over? Uh, so sometimes I would get scared and go to the bathroom right before uh, customs and break the tapes and shove it down the toilet. Uh, it just depended how 
I could read the situation. But often, yeah, I mean, that moment of getting home and pulling out those tapes, it was victory for everybody. It was glorious. So in in your new film, Layla is divorced from her wife, recently divorced. Her mother disapproves of lesbian relationships. It's quite taboo for her. Um, So was it frustrating for you growing up in a country where, like, Stonewall had already happened, and did you have, what kind of ceremony did you have? Uh, we, funny enough, got married at the bank because we found out that we we can get health care if we, we, there was no marriage then. It was domestic partnership. And right. we lived in, uh, I was at U of M doing, in grad school, and we were like, oh, we can we should get married. We can get health care. So we invited some friends to the bank, and then we had a little reception at the, at the queer club in Ann Arbor. So it was very low-key. <laughs> So it must be frustrating to live in a country where you could do that. But your mother's mindset was still from Iran, where it was like totally taboo. It was an ongoing negotiation of my life. And not only in those subjects, it's, you know, when you come from another country to the U.S., you try to keep your culture, your language, and it becomes frozen in time. Even the Persian I speak, people will laugh sometimes because I sound like an older lady. It's like Farsi. From, it's Shirazi. <laughs> My family's from Shiraz from the 60s. And to this day when I speak to people, I remember when I met Asghar Farhadi, his grandparents are from Shiraz. He was blown away that I spoke still the old type of Shirazi. And I think that's interesting. You come to a country and you so desperately want to preserve your culture, but it's a culture frozen in time. And I think... We have to understand that culture evolves with the new cultural mores. And so that's something that I certainly have pushed and my brothers have pushed my immediate family to do. And I think it's a growing growing pains of changing. And is there a way to keep your culture but also to continue to evolve? That's such an interesting observation. And I think um, Iran is such a super... I know what we see in the news, but most of the people are very, very modern and very progressive you know, I grew up in America going to Persian school, going to, uh, I grew up as a Muslim, going to the mosque, growing up very spiritual in terms of religion. All my cousins that live in Iran, they're complete atheists, and they laugh at the fact that I know anything about religion. So I do think That's it's... crazy. An, That's yeah, so funny. It's yeah. not what people think. And I think because in Iran, people have been forced with religion, they wholeheartedly, most people reject it completely as a part of their culture. They they have an aversion to it. Whereas because I had the freedom of either choosing to practice or not practice, I was very connected to my grandfather, who was a Sufi poet. So I saw religion not in the same way that they did, obviously, because it was not something forced upon me. Um, so it is interesting what we think about Iran. I, I think you look at the girls there and the women there and they're the women-led revolution, that doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, that comes out of a highly educated, more than 50% of the university are women. They know their rights. They are connected to the world. That probably couldn't happen to that scale like in Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or something. But you have a culture that's very educated, very in tune with, their right, with what their rights are. And they have been battling, you know, I went to my first Women's Day protest in Iran in 2006 and you see incredible films coming from Iran, theater, art, poetry, I think. That struggle has been ongoing. And I'm so grateful that now we have a voice. We can we can use our voices abroad to help amplify their struggle. Now, I read that you've been imprisoned. Was that for participating in protests? I was arrested making The Color of Love. Um, that was your documentary. 
about three generations of people yes. and how they saw love. Yeah, um, and that that experience um, was inspired seeing that happens in circumstance. Um, I was lucky to get out. Like in circumstance, I had connections to be able to get out of out of uh, being arrested. But it certainly was eye opening. And at the time, I actually had you know permits and everything to shoot. But the reason I made this film, it was very much about all the things I faced as an American in the U.S. I never, ever saw anything that represented anything close to my culture. To me, I felt very alienated growing up and desperate to see something on the screen that represented our community, our life. And I think it was one of the one of the biggest impetuses for me to even make this film was because I grew up in post-80s here, a hostage crisis being terrorized by our neighbors, um, the same neighbors that we were friends with. And when the hostage crisis happened, we became enemy number one. When you say terrorized, uh, what, what, what happened? Oh, they would break our windows, slash our tires, beat us up. Um, this was in New Jersey? This, uh, it was in New York. I moved to New Jersey in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and my brothers probably got much m- more of the brunt of it because they were older. Um, but it was certainly a very, you know, scary time for us to be Iranian in America. And obviously the whole, all of the villainization of Muslims across the board over the years, it, uh, it, was, it was a tough pill to swallow. And, you know, the reason I became a filmmaker was when 9-11 happened, I decided to leave academia. And I wanted to go into media because I felt like it was time to shake things up from the inside. Um, but I think so much of my impetus to become a filmmaker is from my experience here in the U.S. as an immigrant. I just didn't realize until much later in my life that I could be a director. I had never seen many, I hadn't seen any women directors. I knew there were Penny Marshall. The woman who did Big was a woman who was a director. Um, It wasn't until I saw a film series when I was a student at Northwestern called Films from Iran at the Art Institute of Chicago, where they brought directors and two of the four directors they brought were women. And I said, oh my God, can you be a woman and direct a film? And ironically, it was the Iranian woman that I saw first um, in that position. What made you think that a movie could change people's opinions or change the narrative? You know, my parents, I remember when they saw the film Philadelphia. So my dad was a doctor in Bed-Stuy. He treated, you know, during the crack epidemic and the AIDS epidemic. And um, I remember we watched as a family, we saw Philadelphia. And it really moved And, and my... there was a story where Tom, Tom Hanks played somebody who had AIDS and had to deal with all the discrimination against people with AIDS and also had to deal with the fact that there was no real medical um, long-term solution for it. But more importantly, that they were a gay couple, right? Uh, Yes, of course, yes. And that was the thing is, um, you know, obviously my father treated a lot of people as patients, but to see this sort of humanization of a queer couple was really eye-opening to my parents. And I remember my mom saying, of course, gay people are just like any other couple. They go through so much. And it was her first consciousness. It was a long process, but I think it was it was such an important one for her, not just to understand. Obviously, we knew about the AIDS crisis, having my dad being a doctor, but really to humanize what gay couples went through specifically, I think, was really a first step. And so for me, I realized, oh, wow, you know, that is really a way to change people's minds. Cinema could be the way. We're listening to Terry's conversation with Miriam Keshavars. Her new film is called The Persian Version. 
We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. We Were the Lucky Ones is the true story of one Jewish family's struggle to survive and reunite after being separated at the start of World War II. The series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including Outstanding Limited Series and Outstanding Lead Actress and Actor in a Limited Series for Joey King and Logan Lerman. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. While some podcast topics can be complex and pretty heady, Planet Oat Oat Milk is an uncomplicated no-brainer. It's rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. It's great in coffee, cereal, smoothies, you name it. So next time you're at the grocery store, save the overthinking for the podcast and reach for the one that has it all. Planet Oat Oat Milk or visit planetoat.com for more. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Iranian-American filmmaker Miriam Keshavars. Her new film is called The Persian Version. Keshavar's parents immigrated to the U.S. from Iran in 1967, and the film is based on Keshavar's experiences and her mother's life. I want to tell a little bit of your mother's story. Um, she was married in an arranged marriage at age 13. That's so young. And I, uh, I look at her, <laughs> I look at the actress who was 14 when she shot the movie, and I think, oh, to be in a marriage then and to have to leave seventh grade to go with her husband who's 22 and is a, a new doctor, to go to a, a village that she's never been to before, it, it's, it's just remarkable to think about. So did your mother have any say in this at all? I mean, in that era, they really didn't. They didn't even have a concept that they had a right to say no. But I think when they came to ask for her hand in marriage, obviously my mother really pushed against that. She really, like in the film, wanted to finish school. But I think she made a calculated decision that at least my father was someone very educated and that he had aspirations maybe one day to go abroad. And my mom was such a, she was so naive. You know, even when she came, boarded the plane to come to America, she had never seen an escalator. But in her mind, she thought, oh my God, I'll be able to fly to America. And she had this, all these fantasies of even flying. So in her girlish way, she felt that that was the best compromise. Did you always know about the, the arranged marriage? Of course. I think that was something that was kind of a strain on my, I was very close to my grandparents, as you can see in the film. Um, and it was always a strain, sort of a strain between me and my grandparents when I always questioned how they could do that. And again, it was the norm at the time. Um, but I never felt that was a good enough answer. 
I always, I always had a little bit of a, hmm, how would you say it? I love them, but I also had a, I try not to judge them, but I did have a part of me that felt a small distance because of that decision that changed my mother's life. Um, but so much of this film has been trying to understand people's decisions, not now in 2023, but at the time, you know, thinking about my mom at 14 or my grand, my grandmother herself was only in her 30s when her daughter was getting married. So just thinking about it from their perspective, from their what was norm in their culture. You know, this may sound clueless to you, but watching the movie, the grandmother is such a sympathetic character. And I I hadn't been thinking, like, yes, and she's also the woman behind the arranged, arranged marriage. Right. You've got your <laughs> it's mother so complicated, married right? off at age 13. You love you know? her so much now. And yeah. It's, yeah. And it's like, I can't fathom how you would do that to your daughter. Right. And there's so many layers to people, and there's so many reasons at this, a specific moment in time and culture that people make those decisions. It's hard for us. It's. I don't think it's right for us in the present time to go back and to try to judge it from our present perspective. I, I always try to, as a writer, I try to think of it from that specific moment. And that was a big, um, that was an exercise for me, you know, to think of what it was like, for instance, for my mother at 14, all those moments. And to think that that same person only 25 years later gives birth to me, you know, and all of what my expectations are as an American and how she has to reconcile that life that she had with this new life. And I give her a lot of credit for evolving and changing and finding ways for us to to remain a family, even though we are very different, all of us in our family. But there was still a way that she kept us all together. In, the mother in the movie says, talking about her silence, because she says she always wanted a daughter, but years later, after she had you, um, she'd be silent. And she says, my silence was my strength. It kept me in control of my story, a way of dealing with sadness and not being touched by it. Can you talk a little bit about the idea of silence as strength? Yeah, I mean, it's very counterintuitive to our culture, right? We're a culture that is all about sharing or going to therapy and doing all this, like, about verbalizing our traumas. And I think To understand each other and to express ourselves. Exactly. And I think my mother's understanding of how to survive was to kind of bury that in some ways and to say that, to, to just put it in a, and I think put it in a different place and then start a new chapter, a new life. And I thought that was really interesting. I remember in college I studied about the Holocaust and about what what literature came out after and how people didn't deal with the trauma in many ways of the Holocaust or, or how that transitioned for many intellectuals. I, I think it's a different way of thinking about trauma and different way of dealing with it. Certainly one foreign to us in the West, but I think it was one that allowed her to flourish because it allowed her to be the person she wanted to be. And she always said to me, like, I didn't want to be a victim. I didn't want people to feel bad for me. I didn't want to feel bad for myself. So I was going to be the strongest version of myself. I had to survive. But, you know, going back to that, I mean, but then, you know, when she came to, when we shot the sections in Turkey, and she's so, my mom's so outgoing. And then she met the young girl from Iran who's 14 who plays her. She was so quiet. And I said, Mom, what's wrong? She said, I never realized how young I was. Oh. And how much I had gone through until this moment. 
and it really moved me. Yeah, because, I mean, it's amazing to me that she married so young, and I guess your mother was so strong, and it was the culture of the time, but now she could see it through different eyes. Yeah, I mean, I think I think my mother's lesson of strength is one I certainly take with me, you know, in every day of my life, you know, having grown up with bullies or having to still say, you know, I'm Iranian, even though we would get beat up or, you know, in an uncomfortable situation saying, yeah, I'm queer, is that a problem? Or, or being a filmmaker, being a female filmmaker in Hollywood, a woman, I mean, that's a near impossibility itself. That's a constant battle, even to this day. I think all these ideas of strength and having to, it's a given as a woman that we have to push against the norms. This is something I have learned from my mother from day one. She would always say, it doesn't hurt to ask. You know, you have to defend yourself. You have to find a way. You can't accept no for an answer. These are things that I learned from my mother. And I think her strength has been an inspiration. I just never knew until writing this film the origins of that strength. Does your mother like your film? So I was terrified at Sundance. My brothers came out and, you know, we had the premiere and a standing ovation. And I was looking for my brothers high five me. I can't find my mom. We go to the after party. My mom is still not around. And I'm talking to my agent, my lawyer, and my mom comes up to me and grabs my face. And I think she's going to slap me in front of everyone. And she said, you did our family justice. And I was, whew, that's the best, <laughs> the best review I've had. But, you know, honestly, I made the film with all of my family, you know, with my family's acknowledgement. My mother in the past always said, you know, this is a source of shame. We shouldn't talk about it. And then when I came back to her and I said I was writing this film, um, she said, you know, it's time that we tell our own stories. It's time as women that we speak and understand that our stories are important and that we need to tell them. And with that blessing, I started to actually write the film. Miriam Keshavars, I'm so glad we talked. Thank you so much. Thank you. Miriam Keshavars, who wrote and directed the new film The Persian Version, speaking with Terry Gross. After a series of health problems, Joni Mitchell, at 79, has made a surprising return to public performances. Rose and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air And now there's a new box set of her music titled Archives, Volume 3, The Asylum Years, 1972 to 1975. The set contains five discs of studio recordings, demos, and concert performances made during the height of Mitchell's success. Rock critic Ken Tucker says the collection represents a summation of Mitchell's pop achievement and a harbinger of her later, more experimental work. Steal out of money. One eye for the beat police. Sweet fire calling, you can't deny me. You know what you need. By 1972, Joni Mitchell had recorded one masterpiece, the album Blue, one of the great works of romanticism in any form and was a key figure in the singer-songwriter boom, along with such friends as James Taylor 
and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, but her audience wasn't as large as those of her male counterparts. Restless and ambitious, Mitchell left Reprise Records for Asylum Records, then a new Los Angeles haven for singer-songwriters, co-founded by David Geffen. In 72, she released For the Roses, filled with gorgeous ballads of heartache, and, at the prodding of Geffen, her first and only attempt to write a hit single. That would be You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio, heard on this new collection in a performance she gave at Carnegie Hall that same year. If you're driving into town with a dark cloud above you, dialing the number who's bound to love you. Oh, honey, you turn me on. I'm a radio. I'm a country station. I'm a little bit corny. I'm a wildwood flower waving for you. Broadcasting tower waving for you. I'm sending out this signal here I hope you can pick it up loud and clear I know you don't like Well, that song got Geffen off her back and Mitchell was on a songwriting roll. She followed for the Roses with Court and Spark in 1974. It went to number two on the charts and is as pure a pop album as any she created. More importantly, it was a perfect conjoining of alluring melodies with the infinite nuances of her voice. As a lyricist, Mitchell organizes images and metered verse that showcase her phrasing and shape her daringly wayward song structures. That's Help Me, in a live version from a Los Angeles show in 74. This third volume of the Mitchell Archive series has five discs of rough demos, alternate takes, and concert performances. It includes one exceptional song that was left off of For the Roses, a piano ballad called Like Veils Said Lorraine. It's veils you tear off one by one, said Lorraine. No, it's walls we put up, said that tired voice again. The chisel gets blunt and the sword gets profane Nobody's blame But you bind up the stone chips in the gauze that you've slain In an interview with Cameron Crowe included in this package, Mitchell says that that lovely piece of music has the most banal origin. It's an account of a conversation she had with her real estate agent, who was indeed named Lorraine. By the time we get to the last third of this collection, Mitchell has introduced the jazz fusion accompaniment of the L.A. Express, a band led by the slick saxophonist Tom Scott that backed her both in the studio and here in a 1974 Dorothy Chandler Pavilion concert. i 
sirens and the radio and said he'd be over three hours ago I've been waiting for his car on the hill He makes friends easy, he's not like me I watch for judgment anxiously Nowhere in the city can that boy be Waiting for a car The hissing of summer lawns in 1975 signaled Mitchell's decisive break with singer-songwriter pop. She started employing jazz players to execute more open, discursive forms. Down in the cellar in the boho zone I went looking for some sweet inspiration Oh well, just another hard time band With Negro affectations Hopeful in rooms like this When I was working cheap It's an old romance The boho dance It hasn't gone to sleep When I interviewed Mitchell in 1995, she said that this was the period when she realized that, quote, Americans like simplistic emotions in music. They like their happiness major and their tragedy minor, and about as complicated a chord as they can take is a seventh. At the time, that struck me as condescending, but I wasn't working on Mitchell's wavelength. She was done being ingratiating. She wanted an audience that would accept her artistic challenges. I still think that after this, her turn away from pop accessibility resulted in much more uneven albums. But I respect that stubborn adventurousness even as I treasure the hits collected on this unguarded, generous collection. It's a long, long way from Canada, a long way from snow chains, don't even Ken Tucker reviewed the new Joni Mitchell box set, Archives, Volume 3, The Asylum Years, 1972 to 1975. Coming up, we'll hear from electronic music producer and DJ Jennifer Lee, better known as Toki Monsta. She talks with us about her musical path and the near-death experience that changed the course of her life. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a Tempur-Pedic mattress made with a -a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing. 
no matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This past summer, electronic music producer and DJ Jennifer Lee, better known as Toki Monsta, released one of her latest collaborations. The song is titled Eats the Tail with vocalist Rochelle Jordan, and it's a pun on the word tail. Instead of a serpent eating its own tail, in Toki Monsta's version, the tail is the false story we often consume about ourselves. Toki Monsta came into her own story after a near-death experience. In 2016, she was diagnosed with a rare brain disease that required two surgeries, leaving her temporarily unable to understand sound or speak. This was devastating for Toki Monsta, who had, before this diagnosis, become a well-known and respected artist in the electronic music world. Having released six albums and numerous collaborations with artists like Anderson Pock and Sela Sue, and producing remixes of works by pop stars like Beck and David Bowie. After just two months of recovery from brain surgery, Toki Monsta pushed herself to make music again creating one of her most personal albums, Loon Rouge, which garnered a 2019 Grammy nomination for Best Dance Electronic Album, making Toki Monsta the first female Asian-American producer to receive a nomination in this category. Toki Monsta creates her music with electronic tools as well as the piano, field recordings, and vocals. And in live performances, it's like watching a DJ on steroids, with Toki Monsta creating sounds and melodies with synthesizers, sequencers, and drum machines. She's currently touring with the electronic music duo Odessa on their latest tour, which is titled Last Goodbye Tour. Toki Monsta, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks for having me. You have to tell us the origins, Jennifer, of the name Toki Monsta. <laughs> Okay, so the origin, in short, it was a screen name. It was a chat screen name. We all had one back in the day. So Toki means rabbit in Korean. And monster was a way, I, I guess I thought it was a cool way to write monster when I was 16, but I can't take it back because this has been my name now for many years. Um, Would you change it if you if you could? I mean, there are m- moments where I feel like when people see my name, it doesn't fit the kind of music I make. You know, in the very beginning, maybe when you see Toki Monster, you assume that I make really aggressive music. And I think I've been around long enough and people know that, oh, Toki Monster makes like cool, chill, fun stuff that I've redefined what it means to be Toki Monster. And in many ways, that name represents me because of the juxtaposition of Toki, which is cute, and then Monster, which is this scary being. And that's it shows very much in the music that I make. There are moments where my music is very quiet, and then I have music where moments where my music is loud or beautiful and disturbing or light or heavy. And now more than ever, I do feel like I identify with my name, and I'm proud to have it be a part of my life. You grew up in 
Torrance, California, which is essentially a suburb of, of L.A. What kind of music did you grow up listening to? I guess it, it's definitely phases. So when I was very young, it was classical music because that was all I was exposed to. As I got older, I remember the first CD I ever bought. Oh, no, not even CD. I think I bought a cassette tape. Um there were two pieces of music. One was Chasing Waterfalls by TLC, and the other one was Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. And that really set the tone for the rest of my life, I think. <laughs> um, if you can imagine just like a elementary school kid just pulling out a Walkman, listening to that, even though I very well could have bought a CD. I'm not really sure why I bought a tape. I think there was some aesthetic in my mind where I thought it was cooler. Um, but my roots very much were in... West Coast or just hip hop and R and B, it was something that spoke to me more than anything else in the past. It's something I hold on to because it's very present in the music I make today. Can you describe for those who aren't familiar with electronic music the tools that that you love the most to create your sound? So for me, as an electronic artist, I mostly work within my computer. Um, I like the efficiency of working on a computer, but it's really important for me to also work with outboard gear. So like synthesizers, I use a piano heavily in my music, I think, to touch back on my own roots in classical music. A big part of your sound is also the integration of other sounds in addition to those melodies. You actually carry a recorder with you, and the sounds that you record when you're you're out in the world, just about everything, car doors slamming, the sounds of birds chirping, wind blowing, and you integrate that in your music. Yes, I feel like there's something about field recordings, which is what we call this, that gives your music a specific sonic signature that no one else will have. Because if I record the waves crashing on an airplane flying overhead, that particular moment will only happen once in time. You'll never be able to recreate that same wave or that same airplane or that same car door shutting. And in that way, that song that I use it on will also remain completely unique. I'd like to talk with you about a a pretty pivotal part of your life. In 2015, you were on tour. You came home to L.A., You were getting back in the groove of living, and you started experiencing these weird symptoms, something you call ghost foot. Yes. I guess if I were to explain that very simply, I was hanging out at home in my living room when suddenly I couldn't feel my left foot. And you already had an appointment with the doctor, so you decided, I'm going to go to the doctor, I'm going to bring this up, and they immediately said, okay, this is not normal. There had been already something you were dealing with, and that was migraine headaches. And so, long story short, you were diagnosed with a brain condition called Moya Moya disease, which is a progressive disorder caused by blocked arteries at the base of the brain. Um, That is such a big diagnosis. And you were told that you had a choice to make. Um, You could either do surgery or not. But with that came... Um, a pretty grim outcome if you decided not to take that surgery. Yeah, essentially, I was a ticking time bomb. I could be 
living for the next several years, or I could essentially have some kind of aneurysm or stroke and die within the month. It was very unpredictable. But by the time that we caught my illness, it was very, it had progressed to a very um, scary point, to say the least. Right, because those with Moya Moya disease, if it's not treated, many don't live past 40. So you had two brain surgeries. And for a time, you could cognitively understand what was happening to you after the surgeries. But then there came a point where you couldn't speak. Yes, it was a complicated situation to be in because there were many risks associated with the treatment to negate my illness. So I either had to choose potentially dying at any given moment from the illness that I was diagnosed with or being left or also possibly dying from the treatment itself. Um, It does not have a low mortality rate, the kind of bypass surgery I had to do. And obviously I had to do it on two sides, so it's twice the risk. Um, Though the surgery was successful, I was left with some pretty alarming side effects, the main one being aphasia, acute aphasia, meaning I couldn't communicate anymore. At that point, English, which was essentially my first language, became a foreign language. Anytime someone talked to me, anytime I watched TV, anytime there was a spoken word, it just sounded like a foreign language. It was not a good time. (laughs) It sounds very scary, right? Yeah, I think more than being scared, it's also very panic-inducing and anxious because you're so confused. And while I'm in my brain, I'm able to think and have thoughts and have feelings, but my thoughts are also incomplete in many ways. There were simple motor functions on top of the aphasia that I couldn't do. So I was overwhelmed with quite a lot of different emotions at that time. Had doctors told you that it was a possibility that something like this would be a side effect? They did. So... Aphasia is actually one of the most common side effects of, I think, almost any brain surgery. Once you're tinkering in there, you know, a lot of things might go wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the motor skills I think I was also aware of as being a possible side effect. And the only thing I was not made aware of was the fact that I wasn't going to be able to understand music. And I'm sure for most people in this kind of dire situation, that's not very important. But for me, it was. Of course. Of course. This is your livelihood. It's what you do. Can you tell us the story of when you realized you didn't understand music or you couldn't hear it? You were watching a show. Portlandia. I was recovering um, at like an Airbnb or like a rental where me and my sister were staying at after my surgery. And Portlandia was on a show I have seen many, many times. When the intro came on, which is, you know, a very well-known song, I couldn't understand what I was listening to. I was watching the show. I could see what was happening, and the music was no longer music to me. It just became noise. At that point, I realized something was wrong. Was there ever a moment where you felt afraid that you might never get the ability back? to hear and understand music. This is actually very interesting. I never considered myself an especially resilient or strong person. Um, Historically, I always felt as though I wasn't a huge risk taker. Um, There weren't a lot of heroic moments for me at any point in my life. But with this particular situation, 
I found that I didn't allow myself to wallow in this moment of hardship. I was so focused on recovering that something in my mind really switched. And when I had the acute aphasia, I would notice day by day, or depending on the kind of medication I was on, I was able to speak a tiny bit more. And those moments, they set an end goal for me. They showed me that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, where if one day I could say a few more things and communicate a tiny bit more, I held on to that and used that as fuel for me to get through the next few days and see if I could talk a little bit more than the previous days. How long was that process for you? Um, I had those surgeries like the first week of January 2016. By the end of the month, when I was discharged... I was probably talking at about 70%. And by 70%, it means I could communicate. Maybe people wouldn't notice that there was something wrong with my speech. But I would commonly end up in like at blank moments where I couldn't think of words. Essentially a brain fart, but many, many brain farts. But by the end of February, I was probably speaking at about 90%, where it was pretty imperceptible what I had gone through. There came this moment when you had a breakthrough, once your speech came back, once you were able to understand bits of music, you had this breakthrough and you wrote the song, I Wish I Could, which is one of the tracks on your album, Loon Rouge. Let's listen. That was I Wish I Could by Toki Monsta featuring vocalist Sela Sue, which is on the album Loon Rouge in which you were nominated for a Grammy. This song is very meaningful for you, of course, because it was the first song that was the breakthrough for you. It felt like such an accomplishment. A hundred percent. Yeah, there was the week before I made this song was the first time I tried opening up my computer and seeing if I can make any music. Um. The first time I opened up my laptop, I had already been able to speak again. So I was okay speaking and listening to people and TV. All that stuff had come back. So I thought this was an excellent time for me to consider trying to create again. But when I had opened my laptop to make music, I realized that whatever part of my brain that could do that was not there yet. It, I tried, and it's, it was an attempt, but it was not good at all. And it, not, it was not up to par with how I had been making music. So instead of mulling over it or being depressed, I decided just to shut my laptop and give it a break, give myself some more time to heal. I was just like a month and a half out of brain surgery. How am I going to make a song? Right. So 
I gave myself the time and really it was, I'm pretty sure it was about a week later that I just started making this song and it came together. And the feeling inside that you have when anyone makes an amazing song is incredible. There's nothing better than that feeling. But with this particular song, it meant so much more than just making a good song to me. It meant that I was okay. Um, But this song, when I listen to, still brings me back to that moment and how hard it was and shows me that I can still be here to this day, feeling those feelings, but knowing I've made it this far. You know, Jennifer, after your brain surgeries and recovery, I was reading that something happened to your frame of mind. You basically said, this album isn't going to satisfy the needs of an industry or trends. I'm talking about Loon Rouge, which you garnered a Grammy nomination for. You said to yourself, it's going to satisfy you. Can you describe that feeling that changed within you? I mean, if, even after getting your speech and hearing back, you were you were in this space where you were thinking, I'm now making music for me. Nothing is more sobering and life-affirming than knowing you're going to die. And as a young person, we are not faced with death. It's not on our doorstep. We don't think about it. We live without worry in many ways. In my situation, it was just in an instant where suddenly that became a reality for me. In one month, I had to write a will. I had to decide who my cat was going to go to. What would happen to my discography if I were to die a month later? And it was stressful. (laughs) It was not fun. It was sad. Um, I also didn't tell anyone that I was going through this. I didn't want to make a spectacle out of the situation So uh, really, it was like less than eight people who knew that I was going through this, possibly even less than that. Mm. Um, But I realized that if I were to die tomorrow, would I be happy with how I live my life today? And if I were to to die tomorrow, would I be happy with the art that I shared with the world today? Because the art that I make through my music will outlive me. And I want to make sure that I'm happy with what I, with the mark I left on this world. Jennifer Lee, thank you so much for this conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Jennifer Lee, a.k.a. Toki Monsta, is an electronic music producer and DJ. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR.